Welcome to Nationwide Market Insights for April 4th, 2023. The Nationwide Market Insights report for Q2 is now available, featuring our commentary and insight into the economy and financial markets. This is Brian Kirk, and in today's podcast, we're fortunate to have its author, Nationwide's Deputy Chief Economist, Brian Jordan, who will walk us through the NMI quarterly report, shining a spotlight on key pages and providing additional perspective. To view or download the quarterly report while you listen to this podcast, visit nationwidefinancial.com forward slash economics. Brian, great to have you here today with us. Let's begin with the financial markets, which took a pretty big hit after the banking sector experienced its challenges. But it ended the quarter on a rise, which you can see on page five. What are the markets telling us right now, especially with the potential for a recession later this year? So the markets have been topsy-turvy, not just this year, but the last couple of years. We did have a rise in uh, most major equity indices in the first quarter. The S&P 500 was up again, up for a second straight quarter. So despite the volatility that was induced by the banking stress, which we'll talk about in, in just a bit, the market's looking ahead to the perhaps the end of the Fed tightening cycle, an economy that for now is is still growing. And so overall, we had a, a positive a positive quarter. If we look at page six, though, in our second quarter NMI deck, we see that even after back-to-back increases in the S&P 500, the index is still down um, substantially since it peaked in early 2022, down over 14% um, since hitting that all-time high early last year. And it is unusual for the market to be down this much in a non-recessionary period, or perhaps in this case, in a pre-recessionary period. Here on page six, we're showing all the declines uh, from peak in the S&P 500 prior to recessions. And we did have one case in the early 2000s where the decline was larger than it has been to this point um, since early 2022 and going into the recession in in 2001. But for the most part, we generally see mid-single-digit type declines in, in equity prices before we go into recession. The, the, the market is a leading indicator. It's been a really big leading indicator this time around, a much bigger decline uh, than we're used to seeing. If we look at, at page eight, we see something very much along these same lines. Um, changes or um, the, the lag between peaks in the S&P 500 and recessions. So again, the market is a leading indicator, stock prices, our leading indicators, they turned down before recessions. This chart on page eight shows that generally speaking, we have a, a, a decline in, in the market two to three quarters before a recession. Now, here we are, we're recording this in early April 2023, 15 months, five quarters after the peak in, in the S&P 500. So it has been a very long leading indicator in this case. Oh, thank you, Brian. Let's turn to page 12 in your report. And on that page, you can see the market performance from a more global perspective. Can you tell us more about this page and how it connects with the outlook for our U.S. market performance? 
Yeah, so on page 12, we're showing the EFA index, the MSCI um, EFA index. This is the developed market global index. And very much like the S&P 500, very much like the major U.S. indices, developed market stocks were up as well in the first quarter. And like in the U.S., like the S&P 500, it was a second straight increase. And so this is a global trend, not just a U.S. trend, but a global trend where at least in the last couple of quarters, the market is starting to lift a little bit after fairly large declines in 2022. If we turn to page 13, though, we see that even after the the pickup in the last couple of quarters, and even though global stocks, developed market stocks, at least, outperformed the S&P 500 in the first three months of this year, that these stocks are still trailing the U.S. by a very wide margin this decade, going back to the last decade, and going back all the way to, to the 1990s. So here on page 13, we're showing annualized changes in the S&P 500 and in the EFA, the, the MSCI EFA index, the, the developed market global index on a decade by decade basis. You can see in the 2000s, both of these indices were, were lower by, by a bit. The S&P 500 had a negative decade in, in, in the 2000s. Uh, the global benchmark here had a, a negative decade as well, um, not quite as negative. Other than that, in the 1990s, 2010s, and, and at least so far in the, in the 2020s, the S&P 500 has outperformed the global benchmark by a wide, wide margin. In fact, if we go back to 1989, uh, the end of 1989, um, just over three decades ago, since that time, 90s, 2000s, 2010s, and 2020s, the S&P 500 is up by a little bit over 1,000 percent. Pretty big increase. It's up more than 10x um, since the late 1980s, since the end of of the 1980s, over 1,000 percent. The global benchmark, the global developed market benchmark, is up a little bit over 100 percent, 1,000 percent versus 100 percent. So it's been an outperformance. It's been a very large outperformance over the last several decades. We'll move from there on to page 14, and we'll see some individual countries uh, within the EFA, developed markets within the EFA, and we see just how big that underperformance is. Just going back to the 2010, so from the end of 2009 until today, and you here you see some massive underperformance um, in some of these markets. In fact, nearly half of the countries within the EFA have underperformed the S&P 500 by more than 200 full percentage points since the end of, of 2009. Again, 200 full percentage points, that's 20,000 basis points. This is massive underperformance. Countries like Spain, Italy, the UK, Australia, New Zealand, France, and Sweden. Big underperformance. This is a structural development. Obviously, it's been, um, this trend has been in place for, for, a be- for the better chunk of the last three plus decades. And so at some point, we're going to see a turn in this in this dynamic. And um, as we had in the 1980s, for example, we're going to see global markets outperform again. Tough to say when exactly that will be. But this chart, the chart on page 13, would suggest that when that turn happens, and again, we did have an outperformance outside of the U.S. in the first three months of this year. Maybe that was the turning point. 
when that happens, there is scope for very large outperformance given the very big gap between these two series over the last several decades. Now, thank you, Brian. Now, the next few pages, starting with page 19, discuss how the credit spreads have widened and commodities have declined. And the dollar, which uh, rose much of, much of 2022, has actually started the year edging lower. So as a reminder to our audience, you can view and download this report that we're discussing today by visiting nationwidefinancial.com forward slash economics. Now let's turn to the second half of the report, which focuses on the U.S. economy. Looking at page 28, Brian, there's a chart that clearly shows how aggressive this current tightening cycle has been. Brian, how do the current rate hikes compare with previous rate hikes? Yeah, on on page 28, we really see starkly the comparison of between this rate hike cycle and prior rate hike cycles. We see a lot in the news that the Fed has been aggressive, the Fed has raised rates aggressively. Here on page 28, we're showing just how aggressive the Fed has been since it started lifting its benchmark rate back in March of of last year. And we're doing it on a a basis points per month. Uh, So we're right-sizing these tightening cycles. Some tightening cycles are longer, some are shorter. But in terms of the change in the Fed's benchmark per month, this has been the most aggressive tightening cycle in more than half a century. The Fed has raised rates by nearly 40 basis points, 0.4 percentage points per month since it started lifting the uh, the benchmark back in March of, of 2022. We've never seen anything quite that, that aggressive again in the last uh, half century. In fact, for most of this period, we haven't seen anything close to that aggressive. And of course, the last tightening cycle before this one in 2015, or the one that started in 2015, ended in, in 2018, was the least aggressive Fed tightening cycle in modern history. The Fed has followed that up now with the most aggressive tightening cycle in modern history. Now, turning from page 28 to page 29, we do see at the same time that the Fed does tend to pivot rapidly from tightening to easing. So it's been a very aggressive tightening cycle. There are some signs that maybe it's coming close to an end here. When the Fed does turn, it tends to happen fairly, fairly quickly. In fact, this chart on page 29 shows, on average, going back to the early 1970s, the gap between the last rate hike in a tightening cycle and the first rate cut in an easing cycle has been roughly six months. Now, when the Fed goes in the other direction, when the Fed goes from easing, lowering rates to raising rates, that generally takes a year. The Fed tends to tiptoe into into tightening, it tends to speed into into easing. And so again, we have some signs that perhaps the tightening cycle is is coming close to an end. When that finally happens, we should expect that before too long, the Fed will be lowering benchmark interest rates. Let's move on from there to to page 30. And, And here we see that relative to the Fed's forecast, we should expect the unexpected. So the Fed has been making forecasts going back to the early part of of the last uh, decade, putting out a dot plot, a summary of economic projections that includes a forecast or an expectation for monetary policy in the years ahead. And we see here on page 30 that these forecasts from the Fed, from the Fed itself, have not always been so prescient. So for example, at the end of 2014, 
the Fed expected that it would raise rates in 2015 by one full percentage point. As it happened, the Fed only raised rates by 0.25%, 25 basis points, a quarter of a percentage point. Same exact story in 2016. At the end of 2015, the Fed anticipated raising the Fed funds target by one full percentage point, 100 basis points. As it happened, the Fed only raised rates by, again, 25 basis points, 0.25%. On the other side, last year, just last year, Coming into 2022, the Fed only expected to raise rates by 75 basis points, 0.75%, expected only 0.75%, a 0.75% increase in, in the Fed funds target. As it happened, the Fed ended up raising rates, of course, by 4.25%, 425 basis points. So these, these forecasts have been off from time to time. Sometimes they're way off. As we record this, the Fed is expecting to, to lift rates in, in, in its last um, uh, projection, expected to, to raise rates one more time in 2023 and then to leave rates steady through the end of, end of the year. What this chart shows is take that forecast with a grain of salt. What the Fed says and what it eventually does are often two different things. Well, thank you, Brian. In, in your words, you said you know the, to expect the unexpected. If you look at page 31, we see a snapshot of noteworthy events that either derailed or maybe altered the Fed's tightening cycle that was happening at that time. Can you tell us more about these events and how that could apply to current events? Sure. So um, in, in this case, perhaps the headline should be expect the expected, because uh, for many of our listeners who've been reading our commentaries going back to the beginning of the Fed tightening cycle early last year, we've made the point regularly that something always breaks in a Fed tightening cycle. When the Federal Reserve starts raising interest rates, when the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates, that does induce a stress in the financial system. And we often see some major dislocations as a result of that stress, some major strains in the financial system. In fact, in every tightening cycle in modern history, we've seen some strain, some dislocation arise in some corner of, of the financial system. So going back to the failure of Continental Illinois, one of the top 10 banks, temp, top 10 largest banks in the country at the time in the mid-1980s, the savings and loan crisis in the late 1980s, all the way through to the Silicon Valley Bank failure earlier this year. We can trace all of these strains, all of these stresses to the Fed's tightening policy to, to, to higher short-term interest rates. And if we examine these prior cases, what we see is that they tend to happen later in Fed tightening cycles. No surprise there. It takes time for these stresses to build. It takes time for higher interest rates to, um, to impact the financial, the financial system. And once those strains impact the financial system, they in turn influence the Fed to at least slow the, uh, the pace of tightening or, or to wind down the tightening cycle itself. So they often take, take place later in tightening cycles. We can see that in a couple of these cases, after the housing crisis really hit home in 2006, the Fed didn't uh, didn't raise rates any further. After repo madness in 2019, the Fed didn't raise rates 
any any further. Only one more rate hike after the Mexican peso crisis, after Mexico devalued its currency in 1994. So it, these these events tend to happen later in, in Fed tightening cycles. But we also see that they're not always recessionary. So in, in the final column here, we show months to the next recession after these stresses arise. Now, in some cases, um, the housing crisis, uh, for example, once home prices started falling. It wasn't all that long before we fell into the next recession. Um, after the NASDAQ crashed in, in 2000, it wasn't all that long. It was one year later that we fell into, into the next recession. But in some cases, after Mexico devalued, for example, in, in 1994, um, it was more than six years later that we that we finally fell into a recession. Um, very similar story in um, in the mid-1980s. Uh, this was going into a soft landing. It was years after the continental Illinois failure that we went into um, the next recession. So the stresses that we're going through right now, the stresses that, that have arisen over the past several weeks, probably a signpost that um, the Fed is, is close to the end of this tightening cycle, not necessarily a sign, raises the risk, obviously, but not necessarily a sign that a recession is imminent. Let's move from there on to, uh, to the next page. We'll look at page 32, and we'll get into this particular crisis, this particular dislocation in the financial system. The approximate cause here is the decline in bank deposits, which, again, we can trace directly to Fed tightening. The Fed has raised short-term interest rates. Money market rates have increased as a result. Short-term treasury rates, treasury bill rates have moved higher as a result. And banking products have not kept pace. Checking account rates have not kept pace with these yields. Savings account rates have not kept pace with these yields. So we've seen out an outflow from the banking system, from bank deposits. And you can see after fairly big increases in 2020 and 2021, driven by fiscal stimulus, now going back to April of last year, deposits are on the decline. And if we turn to page 33, we can put that decline into, into perspective. Here you see where that decline ranks, at least going back over the last 30 years or so. We're down now since April of last year, about 4.7%. This is the second biggest decline in bank deposits, again, going back to, to 1990. The only bigger decline in that time frame was the drop, a very short-term drop, but a steep drop in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. You can also see that these other pullbacks for the most part, were relatively short-term in nature. After the Lehman Brothers failure in 2008, for example, deposits declined by over 3%, but it was uh, over the course of just a few weeks. Here we've got a decline approaching 5% now, um, and it's taken place over the course of, of the past year. So a long-standing drop, obviously introducing strains into the banking sector and the financial system more generally. And then on, on page 34, just to put it in bigger picture perspective, looking at the banking sector from, from a broader point of view, a number of events in recent weeks have, have provided some flashbacks to 2008, especially as we went through the Silicon Valley Bank failure in, in, in March. Um, but we can see here on page, on, on page 34, and this is just one um, of many examples or just one of many charts where we can show that the banking sector 
is on firmer footing than it was going into the financial crisis of a decade and and a half ago. Most notably, banks are not nearly as leveraged as they were going into the 2008 crisis. We've had a number of reforms since then, of course. Banks have reformed on their own since then. Um, And so the debt-to-assets ratio, as one example, shows that that banks, and this is the debt-to-assets ratio of the S&P banking index, shows that banks have deleveraged and deleveraged significantly since the financial crisis of a couple of of cycles ago. We were seeing leverage ratios, debt-to-asset ratios at that time approaching 50 now less than 20. Significant deleveraging, a real sign here that the scope for a 2008-like crisis is very, very limited. Well, thank you, Brian. You know, one of the concerns that many in our audience is probably focused on right now is the potential for a recession. So what are some of the indicators and the warning signs that we should be watching for this year? So the biggest indicator, and one we've we've always um, shown in NMI, is the yield curve. We talk a lot about leading indicators, but there is one leading indicator that is more leading or more prescient than the rest and has proven more prescient over time, and that is the yield curve, the difference between long-term benchmark interest rates and short-term benchmark interest rates. We can see here on, on page 35 that whenever this spread has turned negative as it is now, or has stayed negative for a significant period of time, we've gone into recession shortly thereafter. You can see prior to the recession in the mid-1970s, the two recessions in the early 1980s, the early 1990s, the early 2000s, the late 2000s, and then even in 2020, even the COVID recession, in front of all of these downturns, the yield curve inverted. Short-term interest rates, thanks to Federal Reserve tightening, thanks to higher rates from, from the Federal Reserve, uh, moved ahead of long-term interest rates. And that's where we find ourselves today. And so this is a very strong signal that the risk is elevated, that there is a very real potential for a recession to take hold either in 2023 or in 2024. If we take a look at um, at page 36, we see the, the typical lags between inversions in the yield curve and outright recessions. It, it's generally at least several months and in some cases more than a year between yield curve inversions, short-term rates moving above long-term interest rates, and outright recession. So we had an inversion this time around, or we had the first inversion in this cycle last November. That would suggest that some, as we get through this year, in the second half of this year, perhaps the first half of, of 2024, the risk of a recession is quite high. Taking a look at uh, the next chart on page 37, we're looking at the, the six indicators that the National Bureau of Economic Research looks at most closely to determine that the economy is in a recession or not in a, not in a recession. So the NBER is the unofficial arbiter of the business cycle. This is the group that tells us when we're in a recession or when we're in an expansion. And the six indicators on this page are the six monthly indicators that it, it, it tracks most closely to give it that signal that the economy is in a, in a downturn or, or not. What we see here, and we're comparing this past year 
to the last year of prior expansion. So how did these numbers look going into prior recessions versus how they look today? You can see that these indicators are all still growing or on balance uh, over the course of the past year uh, on, on an average monthly basis have expanded, but most are now not expanding at quite the same pace as they were in prior pre-recessionary periods. Very importantly though, the big exception here is non-farm payrolls. And this is the first among equals in this case. This is the most prescient of these indicators, the key labor market indicator. Job growth typically means, in virtually all cases, economic growth. And job declines typically mean economic contraction. So right now, as you can see from the second set of bars on, on the page, non-farm payroll growth, employment growth, is still much stronger than is typical in pre-recessionary periods. Not only stronger than it is in recessionary periods, but much stronger than it is in typical pre-recessionary periods. This would suggest that, yes, the risks are high, the risks are growing, but they're not yet overwhelming, and there still is a little bit of runway before this expansion has run its course. Well, thank you, Brian, for walking us through the key pages from the NMI for Q2 2023. I know our audience certainly appreciates all the work that was put into this report. You know, in summary, what message should our readers take away from this quarter's NMI? I think there, there are a couple of key messages. Number one, this continues to be an accelerated cycle. We've had charts in, in past NMI decks showing just how accelerated it's been from, a, from an economic perspective. We had a few charts in here that have been in the past as well that show that it's also been accelerated from a market perspective. Stocks are already down more than is typical in a pre-recessionary period. They started falling much earlier than is typical in a pre-recessionary period. We also show here that in recessions, uh, the market does tend to fall, but it doesn't always fall across an entire recessionary period. And in, in the latter stages of recessions, we tend to get fairly, fairly big increases. Again, the stock market is a leading indicator, tends to fall before recessions, tends to rise before those recessions come to an end. The other message on the macroeconomic front is that the risk of, of, of a recession is growing. It's still growing. We have an inverted yield curve. Other leading indicators have been soft. A number of coincident indicators are softening as well. But the strength in the labor market in particular would suggest that, yes, while a risk of uh, the risk of a recession is rising, it likely that, that risk is not yet overwhelming. The downturn is still not likely yet on our doorstep. Thank you, Brian, for providing your perspective on the economy and financial markets today. And to our audience, you can view the full report that Brian was talking about by visiting nationwidefinancial.com forward slash economics. And this is a great document to share with others as well. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast to receive notifications when each new episode is released. Until next time, for Nationwide Market Insights... This is Brian Kirk. The information provided by Nationwide Economics is general in nature and not intended as investment or economic advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any security or adopt any investment strategy. Additionally, it does not take into account any specific investment objectives, tax or financial condition, or particular needs of any specific person. The economic and market forecasts reflect our opinion as of the date of this report and are subject to change without notice. These forecasts show a broad range of possible outcomes. 
Because they are subject to high levels of uncertainty, they will not reflect actual performance. We obtain certain information from sources deemed reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy, completeness, or fairness. Nationwide and the Nationwide Inn and Eagle are service marks of the Nationwide Mutual Insurance Company. Copyright 2023. Nationwide.